I invite you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 20, or chapter 19 rather. Chapter 19, page 470 in the Pew Bible. We're going to focus on the verses 4 through 11, but I'd like to begin reading at verse 1. So you'll recall that in chapter 18, that was a few weeks ago, uh, Jehoshaphat had teamed up with King Ahab in the north, and that battle had been disastrous. So then we pick up the story in chapter 19, verse 1. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. But Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the Asheroth out of the land and have set your heart to seek God. Here begins our text. Jehoshaphat lived at Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah city by city and said to the judges, consider what you do, for you judge not for man but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. Moreover, in Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat appointed certain Levites and priests and heads of families of Israel to give judgment for the Lord and to decide disputed cases. They had their seat at Jerusalem. And he charged them, Thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord, in faithfulness and with your whole heart, whenever a case comes to you from your brothers who live in their cities concerning bloodshed, law or commandment, statutes or rules, then you shall warn them that they may not incur guilt before the Lord, and wrath may not come upon you and your brothers. Thus you shall do, and you will not incur guilt." And behold, Amariah, the chief priest, is over you in all the matters of the Lord, and Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the governor of the house of Judah, in all the king's matters. And the Levites will serve you as officers. Deal courageously, and may the Lord be with the upright. That's our text then for the sermon this morning. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing from Psalm 34, the stanzas 8 and 9. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, last time we left Jehoshaphat, he was running back to Jerusalem with his tail between his legs. He had been, as we mentioned, he had been up north with King Ahab. 
While there, he had been talked into helping King Ahab attack the Syrians at the city Ramoth-Gilead. The two kings made their plans. They thought it would be an easy win, especially with the doubling up of their large armies. But it turns out that was not the Lord's will. And when the Lord stands against you, it doesn't matter if the odds are a million to one in your favor, you will never win if the Lord is against you. And as the Lord had predicted in chapter 18, Ahab died in that battle. The people of Israel were scattered. Jehoshaphat barely escaped with his life, fleeing back home to Jerusalem. And once he got back home, he is scolded by Jehu, one of God's prophets. We just read that. Should you help the wicked, Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? So that was kind of, that's kind of left hanging there in verse 3, verse 2 and 3. And you know, the last time a prophet went out uh, to scold one of Judah's kings, he landed up in jail in stocks. You remember that? That was a few chapters back. The king who did that was Jehoshaphat's father, King Asa. And the prophet who ended up in the stocks was Jehu's father, this prophet's father, Hanani. So there's something left hanging at the end of verse 3. How will Jehoshaphat respond to this critique, this scolding of the prophet? That must have been a question on the prophet's mind, knowing what happened to his dad. Am I going to end up in jail, in the stocks, in pain, like my father? And all of Israel must have been wondering, too, holding their breath. In the aftermath of teaming up with wicked Ahab in the north, then being defeated by the Arameans in battle, how will King Jehoshaphat respond? What's he going to do? Will Jehoshaphat follow in his father's footsteps, King Asa? Will he, like Asa, harden in his pride and act unfaithfully in his last days? Or will there be this time a different response? Will the king humbly listen to God's prophet and repent? Well, thankfully, our text shows us that it is the latter that takes place. The Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of the Lord, works powerfully in Jehoshaphat to preserve the faith and love that the king had displayed earlier. And so, the Spirit leads Jehoshaphat to turn the nation back to the Lord in justice. And so I bring you this word of God under this theme, Yahweh's King restores justice among the people. He restores justice. We'll take a look at the danger of helping the wicked and the blessing of helping the oppressed. Our text in verse 4 opens with a simple statement that Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem. And you might think, well, that's sort of stating the obvious. Do we really need to be told that it was where his palace was? But when we recall what took place in chapter 18, it's better to take that little sentence as a deliberate contrast. 
In the previous chapter, Jehoshaphat had decided to leave Jerusalem. Chapter 18, verse 2, he decided to go down to Samaria to visit Ahab. So there was a time when he left Jerusalem to go live temporarily in Samaria to hang out with his friend Ahab, dwelling no doubt in his palace as a guest. But since coming back to Jerusalem, the, the chronicler is telling us Jehoshaphat stayed put in Jerusalem. He didn't leave to go to the north again. So a lesson has been learned. There's a, a turning point going on there. Jehoshaphat remains based in his own royal city, but it's not as if he never ventures outside of its walls, and he's certainly not in Jerusalem licking his wounds from the battle. Nor is he there filled with some kind of self-pity at, at the losses he experienced or at the narrow escape. That's the kind of behavior King Ahab had shown in his life on several occasions. No, King Jehoshaphat has something else in mind, verse 4, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim, so that's from the south to the north, and he brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He brought the people back to the Lord. Isn't that something? I mean, that's the very opposite of self-pity, isn't it? This is the very opposite of pride and egoism and selfishness. This is a man who loves his covenant God and who wants his people to love the Lord too. Can you see, brothers and sisters, the Spirit of Christ resting on King Jehoshaphat? We saw that recently in the Belgic Confession preaching that the Son of God is at work all through the Old Testament period already, and also in every king of Judah, he's at work preparing for his own future arrival. So Jesus is at work in 2 Chronicles 19. His spirit is in Jehoshaphat. And here Jehoshaphat is filled with the spirit in a, in a unique way so that he acts like the good shepherd king. He goes out among the people. You can't find another king that does this hardly. He goes out among the people. He speaks to the people. He urges them to turn their hearts back to the Lord their God. He urges them to serve the Lord again. Doesn't this sound a lot like what the Lord Jesus did himself in his earthly ministry? Traveled around the countryside from town to town to town preaching the gospel. That's what Jehoshaphat's doing. The expression in verse 4, and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers, that doesn't refer to a, a physical bringing them back geographically. No, it's the chronicler's favorite way of speaking about repentance. The underlying verb there means to, to turn. And in Chronicles, that verb turn or return is used frequently. If you turn away from the Lord, that's his way of describing that you are rebelling against God. But if you turn back to the Lord, or in this case are brought back, it's just in the hyphial stem, then you are repenting of your sin, you're finding grace, you're finding forgiveness from God, and you're living once more at peace with Him. Jehoshaphat brought the people. He turned their hearts back to the Lord. 
In other words, brothers and sisters, what we see Jehoshaphat doing here is returning to his first love. That's an expression that Jesus uses in Revelation 2, telling one of the churches, return to your first love, to the zeal you had at first when you served the Lord and came to faith. In chapter 19, Jehoshaphat has been king for some 17 or 18 years. So he's been at it for a good while. Way back in the third year of his reign, chapter 17, verse 7, Jehoshaphat had shown a great zeal for the Lord by sending out teachers to teach the people the law of God, to teach them God's way. That, too, was the Spirit of Christ at work in the heart of the king. But somewhere along the line from year 3 to year 17, the the flame of faith inside of Jehoshaphat's heart, that that flame that had burned so brightly, it it had shrunk. It had grown dim. It had become small. So much so that Jehoshaphat considered the Baal-worshipping Ahab of the north and his wife, that prophet persecuting Jezebel, he considered those two his worthy friends, and it was worth his time to go travel to Samaria and hang out with them. It's exactly as Jehu the prophet had charged him, Jehoshaphat had assisted, he had helped the wicked. And he loved those who hated the Lord. That's where his life had developed to that point. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, if if, if you can relate to that, if we can relate to that. Have you experienced the flame of faith? Have you experienced a time when you were zealous for the Lord your God to serve Him? but then it faded back. It's hard to keep the flame of faith burning strong, isn't it? It's easy to just go with the flow of the wicked around us, to ignore their rebellion, to stop keeping away from them and and to actually join forces with them. That's what Jehoshaphat did. He joined forces with them. He wasn't evangelizing Ahab, he was aligning himself with Ahab. Well, when that happens, it has consequences, dangerous consequences, when the flame of faith ebbs very low, consequences for us personally, but also for anybody under our care, anybody for whom we are responsible, our children, our grandchildren, our students in the classroom our parishioners, members in our wards. Jehoshaphat's dulling commitment to the Lord, to love the Lord, nearly cost him his life. He almost died in battle. But notice that the average people in the land, they were following in the king's footsteps. They needed to be brought back to the Lord, same as Jehoshaphat had to have his heart turned back to the Lord. That earlier teaching ministry of some 15 years before had either tapered off or it was no longer resonating with the people because the king himself was no longer abiding by the very law that he had sent those teachers to teach. Because in the law of Moses, it very clearly says that God's people are to have nothing to do with pagan practices of the nations around them. 
The very first commandment of the Ten Commandments is to have no other gods besides Yahweh. And here we've got King Ahab and Jezebel, Queen Jezebel in the north. They weren't just tinkering with these evil practices. They weren't just sort of trying them out. No, they were leading the charge, encouraging the Israelites of the north to engage in paganism and Baal worship and all manner of wicked deeds. Think of how Jezebel thought nothing of, of lying, of organizing slander against Naboth and putting him to death just to steal the vineyard for her husband. The northern kingdom and the, the royal couple, they had zero respect for the law of the Lord. And the cozier that Jehoshaphat became with Ahab and company, the more compromises he had to make to that same law of the Lord. And his people in the south, they followed his example. Are your people following your example, the people you lead? The hypocrisy of the leader will soon become the reality of the people. So what example are they seeing in you? What are the, what are the kids seeing in their dad, in their mom, in their uncle, or their aunt, or their grandparent? What do church members see in, in their pastor? And their elders, deacons. What do students see in their school teachers? Our example impacts them. Where are we leading them? By God's grace, King Jehoshaphat himself repented. And now, he urges the people to follow that good example and repent likewise. And to help them do that, he appoints judges. He does this in two stages. We read in verses 5 through 7, he appoints judges in all the fortified cities in Judah. And then he comes back to Jerusalem, verses 8 through 11, and he appoints judges in the capital city. And in doing this, he's following exactly the law of the Lord as we read it in Deuteronomy 16 and 17. The idea would be that the judges in each of the, the local cities would hear cases and administer justice right there. But if there was any case that was too difficult for them, they would send that case on to Jerusalem where the king had appointed especially wise and experienced men to handle such matters. So there would be like almost a supreme court, if you would, in Jerusalem. Now, we might ask, okay, but why focus on appointing judges? What do judges have to do with the gospel? What does the law have to do with having people turn their hearts to the Lord? Would it not be better if the king had sent out a new round of teachers? It had been 15 years. We don't exactly know what's happened to those teachers. Could still have been there, but maybe they needed refreshing. Maybe they needed more instructors. Well, the answer seems to be that the problem was not that the people didn't know what the law was, but that they were not keeping the law. 
they knew the various commandments. They, they evidently had been instructed, but they were ignoring them as it suited them. In other words, what they were missing was not church teaching, but church discipline. No one was holding them accountable for their sins, and that led on to much injustice in the land. We get a sense of the kind of injustices that were going unchecked when verse 10 mentions taking bribes, or verse 7, and verse 10 mentions bloodshed. So there, there's clearly murder happening. There's lies and deceit and slander, no doubt theft as well. And this, this injustice, the spread of injustice, this is one of the dangers of helping the wicked, which is what Jehoshaphat had been doing. When you help the wicked, what happens to the non-wicked, what happens to the innocent, they get trampled. They become oppressed. King Jehoshaphat had assisted the wicked Ahab. And what happened to the faithful prophet Micaiah, whom Jehoshaphat, by the way, had asked to give a word to the king? Micaiah was thrown in jail and given meager rations, and King Jehoshaphat said nothing. Bupkis. He should have stood up to King Ahab and said, let that man of God go free. We don't even know what happened to Micaiah in the end, whether he got out or not. And then what happened to, to many of Jehoshaphat's loyal soldiers who, following Jehoshaphat's command, served alongside of Ahab and fought in his futile battle? Well, many of them were killed. Jehoshaphat helped the wicked, the innocent suffered. Jehoshaphat's own disloyalty to God's law had led to a perversion of justice at that higher level, and now this was being repeated at street level all throughout Judah. Many later prophets like Jeremiah give us a picture of thriving wickedness and oppression among God's people because this was a cycle that came back again and again. And I quote from Jeremiah chapter 9, everyone deceives his neighbor, no one speaks the truth, they have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves, committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. So when God's law, that good and holy law, which has laws pertaining to God and neighbor, when that law is ignored, oppression sets in. Oppression. Is there oppression among us? In our homes, there certainly are forms of injustice that can exist out in the open and are plain to see at times, but there's also other forms of injustice that lurk in the shadows, that take place within the four walls of a home or in other private places. Are we like Jehoshaphat allowing or enabling wickedness to flourish right under our own roofs? Is there a child in danger? Is there a wife living under threat? Is there someone with power holding something or someone else 
making them suffer? Are the souls living with us in our home or working alongside of us in our jobs? Are they experiencing support and care so that they blossom in in service to God? Or are these people wilting because someone is hurting them in some way, berating them maybe, putting them down, or simply neglecting to love them as they should? These are all forms of injustices. These are evils that live in darkness and thrive because they have no accountability in those places to the law of the Lord because they are never exposed to the light. Is it not time that we talk about these things and expose them to the light? Is it not time that we think carefully and root out also these kinds of evils if they live among us? And if we are the guilty oppressing someone, is it not long past time that we repent and turn back to God in sorrow of heart? For there's danger, another grave danger in helping the wicked, and that is bringing God's anger down upon our own heads. Our text refers to that in verse 10. The judges are commanded to warn the people of their wicked ways that they may not incur guilt before the Lord and wrath may not come upon you and your brothers. The Lord is warning them, I am the ultimate judge. I will have the final say. Verse 7, there is no injustice with the Lord. There is no partiality or taking bribes. If you judges don't do your job, I'll do it for you, but then it's going to be bad for you. I will hold the judges to account, and I will also hold the perpetrators to account. Make no mistake, they will not get off scot-free. The wrath of God will fall on wicked judge and perpetrator of evil alike. All who are oppressed may take comfort in that reality too, that evildoers will one day have to give an answer to the judge of all the earth. Well, how much better then? And how much wiser and safer to act justly now. And what a blessing it is to to help set free those who are oppressed. For that's what the good and the upright judges do, right? They, They free the oppressed. That's what we can do here in the church when some form of oppression comes to light. We can work to set that person free. This is justice. Justice is when evil is stopped. Evil always breaks down. Evil always destroys. And a godly judge, he will put a stop to it so that the victims of evil may be liberated. Isn't this exactly what Jesus came to do? His mother Mary already sang in that song of Mary, hymn 17 in our book. She sang of God's mercy toward the oppressed and justice toward the oppressors. I quote from Luke chapter 1, God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. The rich and those on thrones are the oppressors in that song. And the hungry and the poor are the oppressed. What does the Lord Jesus Himself say about His ministry? Luke chapter 4, 
quotes from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is not the folly of what today is called social justice. Do not mistake either the Lord Jesus or myself in what I'm trying to get across. But this is what has always been the justice of God. It is God who calls oppression in any form evil. And it's God who will judge the oppressor and give justice to the oppressed, whether that's Christians in hiding in the Middle East or whether it's kids living in fear in Canada or whether it's a spouse suffocating under the demeaning conditions of their marriage. God hates the evil of oppression, and we need to hate it too. It has to be purged from among us. God said it already in Deuteronomy 16. He repeats it in the New Covenant, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. There is blessing in rooting out evil, for this is God's work, and God is with us when we fight injustice. Jehoshaphat instructs and encourages the judges in verse 6, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but you judge for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then let the fear of the Lord be upon you. This is the Lord's work. Whenever we stand up for true justice... Whenever we stand against evil and support the cause of the innocent, we are doing the Lord's work and we may expect His blessing. But a still greater blessing accrues to those who are helped, to those who are set free. And I wonder if we can put ourselves in their shoes for a moment. Put yourselves in the shoes of somebody who is being oppressed on the down low where nobody can see. Imagine a child being bullied. But it always happens where no one is around to see it. He or she has no friend to help. He's too afraid, she's too afraid to say anything, not sure that anyone will believe, not sure that anyone can do anything. Imagine a wife who was consistently put down by her husband, criticized and made to feel worthless. A wife who was unloved and neglected, but it never occurs in the public eye, just at home, just in private. She's depressed and discouraged, but has no idea what to do, no idea if anything can be done, no idea if she'll be believed. Jeremiah wrote about deceit, didn't he? Deceit upon deceit. And that's what happens in these environments. There's a facade that the public sees set up deliberately to hide evil behind those doors, but evil it nevertheless is, and the victim languishes. Do you think these kinds of scenes are unimaginable in Christian homes? 
Do you think it's unimaginable in Canadian Reformed homes? Just ask any Christian counselor whether they were encountered these things in the Reformed community, and they will tell you that the things I just mentioned are just the tip of the iceberg. So, brothers and sisters, I want to say to you this morning, if you are living under some kind of oppression, some kind of evil, some kind of persistent mistreatment, then please reach out for help. Number one, the Lord sees you. And we as church want to see you. We want to help you. So you can talk. You can talk to me. You can talk to an elder. You can talk to an adult you trust. And we promise to listen. We promise to seek to understand. We promise to help you. We will find a way to bring you relief from your oppression and under God's blessing to let justice flow down like the waters. And to anyone here who may be an oppressor, whether you fully realize it at this moment or not, there is blessing for you too if you repent, if you understand and confess your wrongs to the Lord, if you own up to those wrongs and submit to the consequences in humility and in the strength of the Lord change your way, then you will know the blessing of forgiveness and healing. For the evil we're talking about, the evil oppression, it, it brings no good to anybody. The perpetrator gets the wrath of God on him. The victim is suffers. But when the evil is exposed, when the light of Jesus Christ comes to shine on those circumstances, then there is relief on, for both parties and true healing can begin. Our Lord Jesus Christ, He came and He suffered all manner of injustice, didn't He? Was He not oppressed by the Jewish leaders, by Pontius Pilate too, and by the Roman soldiers? And yet, unlike many, Jesus was not a victim. It was not the case for him that he didn't know what to say, didn't know who to turn to, wasn't sure if he'd be listened to. No, no. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, I could call upon my Father and he would send 12 legions of angels to disperse my enemies. So the Lord Jesus had the power to overthrow his oppressors, but he didn't do it. Why? He chose to stay in the place of oppression and absorb all of their unjust treatment because he knew that was the treatment we deserved as sinners. That was the treatment that our sins justly would bring upon us. But our king stepped into the gap. He took upon himself our sins, and he took that oppression away from us. And that's why the Lord Jesus is determined that among his people, especially in his family, the church, there should be no oppression. Think of how angry that makes the Lord Jesus when in the church there is oppression behind closed doors, let alone in the open. What he went through to relieve us 
of that evil? The church needs to be a bright light of justice. In private and in public, we should be a people that looks out for and cares for one another as God looks out and cares for us from the youngest to the oldest so that all may live in the joy and peace we've been given by God. Doing justice. It's good work, but it's hard work, and it's scary work. The easiest thing would be to not talk about it, to leave the evil in the shadows. The easiest thing would be to never bring it up in a sermon. The easiest thing would be for the oppressed to never bring it up with an office bearer, to just suffer in silence. But the Lord will not have it that way. Evil must be combated and thwarted, and justice must, must, must prevail, which is why Jehoshaphat concludes his appointments with encouragement. Verse 11, deal courageously, he says to the judges, deal courageously, and may the Lord be with the upright. You could translate that as a promise too. Deal courageously, and the Lord will be with the upright. He will be with us in seeking justice. That's what Jesus died for, setting His people free from the tyranny of sin and evil in its many forms. That's what He died for. So Jesus is with the oppressed who call out to Him. He's with them. Let's you and me be with them too. For if we are with them, then Christ is with us. Amen.